Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's word, flip over to Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter four, be looking at verses one through 13 this morning, Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse one. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as it is said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, uh, <clears throat> to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would have not spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for this promised rest. Father, we thank you that those who have heard your voice, those who have united the truth of your word with faith and trust in the work, the completed work of the Lord Christ Jesus, will truly and fully enter into your rest. Father, for those who have not, though their lives may outwardly appear peaceful, they continue to strive against you, against your will, against your glory. Father, let each of us examine ourselves today to see that we truly have entered that rest, and we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, Jesus, a better Sabbath. So the idea of the Sabbath is somewhat controversial in Christian circles. There are Christian groups that adhere to the concept of strictly following the Sabbatarian laws that have been given in the Old Testament. Certain Christian denominational groups even go so far as to make sure that they hold their day of worship on the traditional Sabbath on Saturday rather than on Sunday. So you do have groups of Christians that that go so far as to to follow that sort of a pattern. And then you have people on the far other side of their views of the Sabbath, namely that they don't ever actually think about it at all. Um, And that's just that's the reality of it. There are Christians who just don't give two thoughts about the Sabbath whatsoever. Uh, And then you have everybody in between. You have some people that are those who adhere to Sabbath principles, but still worship on Sunday. And you have a lot of different varieties about these sorts of things. And so anytime you tackle a topic like rest and Sabbath rest, you're bound to run up against varying viewpoints. And so we're just going to allow the text of Hebrews to inform how we should view this concept of God's rest. So taking this section of scripture as a whole, verses 1 through 13, we see that there is a promised rest. There is a rest that has been promised to the people of God. Now, about midway through our text, long about verse 8, the writer to the Hebrews says, had Joshua been the one to give the people rest, there would have been no need to mention it anymore. They would have gone into the land of promise. They would have had rest from all their enemies. And God's promise of rest 
to his people would have been fulfilled and there would be no need to speak of it anymore. Yet we know that not only was it spoken of many times, but there were some trips out of the land and back into the land and out of the land and back into the land and plenty of enemies that they still had to worry themselves with after the days of Joshua. And so they have to speak of the people still needing that promised rest that God had said that they would have modeling itself after the Sabbath that was given at creation. And so how is it that this promised rest is to be accomplished according to this section of scripture in Hebrews chapter four? First, this promised rest is based on the word preached. And this is important, the note that this author is making to us. This promised rest is based on the word preached. Notice, if you will, in our text speaks about those still needing to enter the rest. Some have come short of it. Verse two, for indeed. We have had access to a land grant that is without oil in the Middle East, just as they have had also. And that's not what it says. Not anywhere close to what the text says. We have received the outward sign of covenantal circumcision just as they have also. And that's not what it says. We have adhered to the priesthood and the sacrificial system and embraced the life of the tabernacle and or the temple just as they have. also. That's not what it says. The author to the Hebrews, when speaking about receiving this promised rest from God and needing to enter into it and how some have missed it because of disobedience, immediately moves to, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they have had also. This promised rest is not based on a land grant. It's not based on nation state borders. It's not based on geopolitical principles. It's not based on the socio-ethic racial group that you were born into. It's not based on religious practices that are outward, whether that be circumcision or sacrifices or the burning of incense or a particular place of worship. None of these things are being tied to the reality of coming into the promised rest of God from his eternal covenant. The writer to the Hebrews declares to his audience, which we have determined is likely both Jewish and Judaizing Gentiles. If you want to enter into the promised rest of God and you've seen the example of all of these people before who missed entering into the the promised rest of God. Here's what they missed. They had the word of God preached to them and they did not believe. That is the issue of the promised rest of God. It's based on the word preached. Not the preacher, not the audience, not the location, not the religious ritual, and not the place of the religious ritual. It is based on the word of God itself. And friends, this is a a significant thing. This is a very significant thing. Because there's a lot of people in Christianity today, not Judaism and not Islam, in Christianity today, that are still striving to achieve the rest of God and salvation through the works that they do and the traditions that they keep and not the word that they believe. And it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. And we could rudely, as a room full of Protestants, immediately move our minds to our Catholic friends and be like, well, sure, that's what they're doing. Not us. We're good God-fearing Protestants. We don't have any sort of traditions that we have to follow to feel like we're entering into God's rest. We don't have to walk any aisles or say any prayers or keep any sort of attendance charts or cards or have a quick reference guide to the points that we have to believe about certain ideologies to make sure that we're really good Protestant American Christians. We don't have to vote a particular way in elections and hold certain ideologies about socio-political issues in order to align ourselves well with the mind of God as far as his rest goes. Can't say amen, say ouch. 
We have plenty of things in our own tradition that we elevate to the place above having just simply heard and believed the preached word of God about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We have ample things in our lives and in our mindsets that we equate with a tradition that must be followed, just like our friends in the Old Testament did, just like our friends in this audience when they first heard this, just like people have been doing for millennia since the fall has occurred. And so, friends, this morning, if we're going to properly understand the concept of rest, if we're going to properly understand the concept of Sabbath, we have to allow it to be based on the word preached and our response to that preached word. But, friends, it's not just the word preached, but it's also the transformation that occurs when that word is preached. Notice, if we will, as we continue in verse two, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. Okay, great. That's all it takes. I show up every Sunday and I hear somebody preach. Awesome. No, but the word they heard did not profit them. Uh Oh, why not? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. There was no life transformation from the inside out. You say, Philip, this is sounding an awful lot like faith is a work-based salvation. Friends, the writer to the Hebrews clears this up for us in verse 3. For, for we who have believed entered that rest, just as he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. God in his sovereignty from before the creation of all things has determined that the gift of faith wrought in the dark heart of man, enlivening him to the truth of Jesus Christ would be that thing that would give him true rest. And friend, if you day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, hear the word preached and it falls on hollowness in your heart. There's no stirring of love for Christ. There's no longing to be made properly into his image and conformed to the way that he is. If there is no transformation from that word that you hear preached because of the trust that you have in the gospel that's declared, then you have not entered into that rest. Because friends, I tell you, I guarantee you that those who wandered through the wilderness and were not allowed to enter into the land of promise were vastly more exposed to the word and the great works of God than any of us have ever been. How many of you lived through the ten plagues of Egypt and saw God overthrow every Egyptian false god? How many of you had the death angel pass over your house because you slaughtered a lamb and spread its blood over the doorpost? How many of you watched the sea spread apart and swallow up the great army of the Egyptians that you might walk free? How many of you wandering through the wilderness never had the sandals of your shoes wear out because God miraculously kept your feet protected? How many of you had a fire by night and a cloud by day to preserve you from the elements in that wilderness wandering? How many of you in the midst of your hunger, had God provide for you both bread and meat? How many of you in the wilderness wandering, dying of thirst, had God miraculously supply water for you? How many of you watched day after day God's mighty works for you and yet still did not believe? How much more likely then are we who have not yet seen the Lord or his great miracles, or the face of Jesus Christ to possibly shun this message of the gospel. Friends, this is a real warning that the writer to the Hebrews is giving to us today. If they did not enter into that rest, how arrogant must we be to think that we also might not enter that rest 
if we neglect this great word preached. Because they did. And they had far greater access to the proof and worth and viability of that word than we have ever had. There is a diligence on the part of the human person, but there's a gracious working also on the part of God in all of this. And friends, what we call out for is not greater diligence on our part, but a greater display of grace on God's part. Help my unbelief. That's the cry of the scripture. And so we see here in this text that there is a centrality of the word when it comes to entering into the rest of God. In verses 12 through 13, one of the most known passages about the scripture In all of the Bible, yet probably one of the most abused, misused and misunderstood also in all of the Bible. It is in the context of properly entering into the salvific rest of God. This concept of the word of God being living and active and sharper than a two edged sword. Dividing the bone from the marrow, piercing the very intentions and thoughts. It gets to the heart of things. And what is the heart of the matter for all of us if we are honest with ourselves? If we have genuine, real Christian self-examination, what am I putting my trust in? That is the great question of the scripture. What idol am I replacing Jesus with in my life? And friends, we can lie to ourselves so well. We talked about that last week can shield our eyes and we can get affirmation from others and we can think that everything is just fine and we can press back against the sharpness of the word of God. I've heard it my whole life. I've heard it my whole life. As a preacher who's been accused of being too sharp and too blunt, I've heard it my whole life. Two greatest compliments that I've ever received as a pastor. I received one of them just this past week and I was very appreciative of it. The second greatest compliment that I've ever received in my life and I've I've had it in different forms is when parents come to me with younger children and they say, my kids really like listening to you preach. It doesn't get any better than that. Because as a kid, I hated listening to anyone preach. And so if a kid goes, man, I really like listening to that guy. I I, I feel like I'm doing, I don't care if the mom or dad likes listening to me or not. I'm doing something right if your kids like listening to me preach. Second greatest compliment. I mean, first greatest compliment. The greatest compliment past that one, though, that I ever get from anyone when I preach is when they come up to me and say, you know what? I didn't like what you had to say today. It kind of hurt my feelings. Amen. Praise God. Why did it hurt you? Did I say something rude? Did I say no? Just that text. I didn't like that text. Praise God. And what I didn't like it either. I was studying it all week, all week, getting hammered on it back here going, I can't say that to these people. Somebody's going to get mad about that. And God goes, yep, they are sharper than a two edged sword. Go. Like, really, I got to say it like that? Well, that's what it says, isn't it? Y'all don't know. Most of my study time has spent me arguing with God. Do I really have to say it like that? Could you have written it? A, is there a textual variant somewhere in the original languages that will let me say this differently? Because that's brutal. Can we just skip to the next page? Oh, that's brutal, too. Oh, that's brutal. Can we find one that's not so sharp? No, because it's two edged sword. Any side you turn a two-edged sword on, guess what it's going to do? It's going to cut you. And if you come into the presence of the Scripture, whether you're reading it on your own, you're in a Bible study, you're in a sermon setting, you're in a worship setting, wherever you might be, and you don't feel the prick 
that brings the sharpness against the skin of the word of God, then someone has not rightly handled the word of God that day because it is a two edged sword. And it pierces deep down inside of us. Why? Because, friends, this is life and death. This isn't a plaything. This is eternal life. This is the promised rest of God. And there have been people for millennia that have thought they were in that rest. Most terrifying passage of Scripture, in my opinion, in all of the Bible is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But, Lord, did we not? Didn't we do many miracles? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And I will say to them, the Lord Jesus speaking on that day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you spent their whole lives thinking they were in the rest and they weren't. Why? Because the word had not pierced their hearts. They were just going through the motions of religious activity. Feeling very self-congratulatory about all they had accomplished in the name of the Lord. And never once had it dawned on them that their heart of stone needed to be replaced by a heart of flesh. Satan wants to lie to each of us and it's easy for us to lie to ourselves. And the great lie that he wants to tell every one of us is, hey, you know what? Don't ever really think about it too much. You're doing just fine. Satan doesn't want you to become a Muslim or a Buddhist or Hindu. He wants you to be complacent. Don't ask too many hard questions. Don't take the faith too seriously. Just feel comfortable and a little proud about all the good that you're doing in Jesus name. That's perfect. Just kind of hang out right there. And you know what? These folks in the desert, they weren't always murmurers and complainers. A lot of times we like to wag the finger of accusation at those wandering in the wilderness who didn't get to enter into the promised rest, who were condemned in the scripture as those who were were these awful, unbelieving people. And we forget that the beginning of the Exodus starts with, and God heard the cry of his people as slaves in Egypt, and it came up to him, and he set out to free them. It wasn't just one or two people that were praying to God that he would come and deliver them from the oppression that they were feeling. It says they all were praying earnestly night and day in the midst of their oppression. God, please remember your people. And he did. And he wrought some of the greatest miracles the Bible has ever recorded in the shortest period of time. When you think through all of the great miracles of the Bible. And how many of them occur, which, by the way, are not many. The scripture doesn't have an overwhelming number of miracles. It only has a few. But when you think through the miracles that are performed in the scripture. And then you think about their time frame in relationship to one another. You do not have a more dense collection of miracles, one on top of the other, than you do in the life of Moses in the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. It's incredible what these people experienced, and yet they still did not believe. Because the word of God had not penetrated their hearts. So, friends, there's a great warning being given here that in our pursuit of the Sabbath, our pursuit of rest from God, it must not be a pursuit of some sort of religious ritual. It must be a pursuit of the rest that comes from our striving against God in our sin that can only be accomplished when the stone of our heart is pierced through by the sword of the word of the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is replaced with a, a, a moldable and shapeable heart of flesh that can be used by God to orient us toward the things of Jesus. It's not based on the outward. It's based on the inward. And so, if we have yielded to, by faith, this word of God, 
What kind of rest are we entering in? Because the writer to the Hebrews does something very interesting here. When he speaks of the rest that that the people of God should enter into. He makes intentional reference to two kinds of rest found in the Old Testament. First, there is Sabbath rest. He makes reference to in verse four. God resting on the seventh day from all of his works. By the way, I absolutely love what happens in verse four. This is an aside. This is for fun. This is for free. This is to help encourage all of our minds as we study the Bible. Clearly, whoever wrote this was remarkably gifted and well-versed in the Bible. They didn't have Google search on their phone at the time. They didn't have access to a bunch of scrolls laying around. Most all of these references are probably coming from memory. And I love what they say here. Look at this is super encouragement. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day. It's in the Bible someplace. I know. I just don't remember where it's at. And what I find really funny about that is that, yes, there's the creation story where it says that. And then there's also the Ten Commandments where it is. So whoever the genius person, they were a genius person who knew the Bible remarkably well was that was writing this down. While they were writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, forgot the creation story and the Ten Commandments. Hey, somewhere in there it talks about God resting on the seventh day. You have no idea how encouraging that is to me personally. Like when I'm trying to think through the Bible. Like, hey, God used the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to have somebody write about this and they forgot the creation story and the commandments. So I really don't feel that bad about it. Like when I forget a reference from time to time, it's okay. God can still use that. That's awesome. So I'm encouraging you as you're studying and memorizing the Bible. Even the writer of the Hebrews did it. It's okay. Not a big deal. But notice what it says. There's the Sabbath rest. From the creation story, from the Ten Commandments, there's this idea of God resting on the seventh day from his work. Now, let's talk about Sabbath rest for just a second. Like the, the classic concept of Sabbath rest. W- what is it? What's it like? Why is it important? So the idea of the Sabbath is rooted in creation. It's not rooted in the law. Because God made everything. He said everything was very good. And on the seventh day, he rested It's an interesting thing because the dynamic of the creation story is there was evening and there was morning, a first day, a second day, a third day. And then when you get to the seventh day, there's no evening and there's no morning. It is a perpetual unending day. It doesn't have a start. It doesn't have an end. If you're following the the flow of how that's laid out. It's interesting to avoid that problem. In our English Bibles, God resting on the seventh day is actually the start of chapter two. When you read through Genesis just kind of normally, those first couple of verses that we have placed in the start of chapter two really probably ought to be at the end of chapter one. And somewhere along about verse three or four of chapter two should probably be the start of a new concept, a new idea going on. But it didn't follow the flow of evening and morning, evening and morning. So let's push that off to the next thing. What's going on is there's this perpetual, unending seventh day rooted in creation. It was set forth by God. It was considered holy and beneficial and a blessing to those who would also get to participate in it. It was a time of trust and focus. Man was made to work prior to the fall. Work was holy and good and righteous and enjoyable. There was nothing bad about work. There was nothing bad about going to a job. There was nothing frustrating about work. Um, the reality is, is no matter how much you love your job, there there's a sense in which something about your job is going to eventually frustrate you even if you love it. Why? Because you're a sinful person in a sinful world dealing with sinful people. And if you're trying to do work, something's not going to, some paperwork's not going to get filed right. Something's going to put put in the wrong place. A meeting's going to get canceled. Uh, a deal's not going to go through. Like whatever it is you work at, something's going to happen where you just like, I wish that, I just, this is so frustrating. Can you imagine doing work in a world where none of that ever happens? You get home. Hey, how was work today? Perfect and amazing. Absolutely nothing went wrong and everything went just the way that it was supposed to. Everyone was pleasant. No one was rude. Everyone was on time. All the deals went through exactly the way that they should have. It was super beneficial for everybody. It was great. 
No packages got delayed. No employees got mad. Nobody had to get fired. Everybody got a promotion. We'll get another promotion tomorrow. It's fantastic. Work is great. Can you imagine? And so imagine God supplying in a world like that. One whole day where you don't have to do any of that, even though it's awesome to do it. What's the point? Humanity was made to work. But we were also made to worship. And while it's true that we can worship through our work, there is a call to concentrated worship and focus on the Lord apart from our doing, but rather our being. And one of the things that we have lost as human beings is that we are more than the sum total of what we do. And you can tell that we've lost this culturally the first time you meet a new person. Hey, good. Well, pre-COVID, you know, now you got to do this stuff, you know. Anyway, hey, how are you? What's going on? You know, you shake a hand and say, tell me your name. You got the name. Okay. And then here we go. You ready? Let's run through them. Let's see if we can pop quiz it today. First question is, are you married? Which is followed up with all of the marital related questions. Do you have kids? Do you not have kids? How long have you been married? But the primary one is about family. Are you married? Second one in this environment we live in is, where do you work? There it is. Where do you, what do you do for a living? And the third one in the world we live in in East Texas is, where do you go to church? That's right. So we identify ourselves and other people not by who they are, their being, but by what they do. Are you one who has done the act of marrying someone else? Are you someone who's done the act of parenting someone else? Are you someone who has done the act of securing a job for livelihood, who does some work for someone else or possibly for yourself that benefits someone else? Are you someone that attends a particular place of location of worship where you serve those people in that environment? What is it that you do? Not just being who you are. Because if we hear about people that have things that happen in their lives that forcibly keep them from being able to answer those questions the way we like for those questions to normally be answered, we often feel sorry for them. Oh, they couldn't get married or they couldn't have kids or they, they couldn't, I mean, they can't keep a job or he, he's had this thing where he just can't do the work that he used to do. And, I, uh, and, we just, and suddenly we feel like there's some sort of less than reality for this person when in fact our very being is made in the image of God, regardless of what our doing is. It's a great gift that God has given us. And in creation, Sabbath was established that God said, I'm making you workers, but your identity is not found in what you do. Your identity is found in who you are and you are an image bearer. And so at least one day out of a working cycle, you are going to stop doing and you're just going to be. And what you're going to be is one who's in my presence. So Sabbath is incredibly important in the Old Testament context of creation because it let let us as humans step outside of the activities that define us and it let us step back into the reality of our true definition, being image bearers of God. And we didn't have to perform or do anything. We just had to commune with God. So that's the first rest that we have is Sabbath rest. But the writer to the Hebrews here is also addressing inheritance rest. Notice the conversation about Joshua and about entering into the rest. That's not talking about the day of the Sabbath. That's talking about entrance into the promised land. But it's identified in the Old Testament as a kind of rest. It carries with it Sabbath language, if you will. You're going to receive a rest from your slavery, a rest from your oppression, a rest from your enemies. This reception of the promised land is the understanding of reprieve from all of the horrors of having lived in Egypt. You were someone's slave and now you're going to be free. 
You were wandering in this wilderness, but now you will have a home. You had enemies on all sides, but now you will have victory in the Lord over those enemies. And you will be able to once again enjoy an Eden-like condition in which you're able to do your work and live your life without the fear that you had while you were in Egypt. That was the promised rest of the promised land. All throughout the Old Testament, that was the announcement of entering into this promised rest. That's why they longed so much to get there. And once they got there, they fought so hard to keep it. It's because God said, once we get here, we get this rest. So, friends, there are these two kinds of rest that are being addressed here. The Sabbath rest and the inheritance rest. And, friends, I want to tell you that Jesus is the better rest. He's better than the Sabbath and he's better than the inheritance. Let's see why. Let's talk through why that's the case. First, when it deal with the idea of Sabbath. Jesus. Is true renewal. To be in Christ is to be renewed. To be in Christ is to be renewed. To be in Christ is to truly worship. I cannot rightly worship God without being in Christ and Christ being in me. It is the presence of Christ in my life. Secured by the down payment inheritance of the Holy Spirit currently. That allows me to righteously and faithfully enter into the presence of God and worship Him as I should as a true image bearer. It is Christ who is causing me to bear rightly the image needed to stand before God without fear of His wrath. He is the better Sabbath. What the Sabbath was supposed to do prior to the fall, give me a moment of focus In my being rather than my doing of proper communion with God that was wrecked completely by the fall is now fully and rightly restored by participating in the person and work of Jesus. He's the better Sabbath. This is the reason why the scripture teaches us that though some people honor one day and other people view all days as the same, what we should all do is find our true rest in Christ. Because friends, without him, you'll just keep striving. You'll keep trying to find that work to do rather than that person to be. And that is the human condition. You will not ever settle. You will not cease striving as the psalmist says. And know that he is God. Instead you will keep finding the next work. The next prayer I need to pray. The next worship service I need to attend. The next good work that I need to do. The next thing that I need to read. The next study I need to have. The next self-sacrificial discipline I need to enforce on myself. So that God might be made happy with me. Friends, God will never be happy with you. But he is delighted in Jesus and Jesus in the gospel invites you to come into him so that when God sees you, he sees Christ and loves you with the love of Jesus. He wants you to be in Christ, not to try to do to become like Christ. And that makes him the better Sabbath. But friends, Jesus is also the better inheritance. The inheritance rest that the writer here speaks of. Jesus, friends, I know that this is going to bother some people. I'm not making a political statement when I say this. If this bothers your politics, take it up with your politics and not me. But Jesus is better than a piece of land someplace. In fact, Apostle Paul in the book of Romans understood that when he talked about the land inheritance. He said, and remember when they promised our fathers that they would inherit the strip of land. No, they would inherit what? The whole world. Even the Apostle Paul understood that Jesus is better than a strip of land. The inheritance restricted to a land space pales in comparison to the glory of the kingdom of God found in Christ Jesus. Because friends, the kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is a person. 
Jesus Christ is the better inheritance because he gives true victory over our enemies. Friends, there is nothing that you can do to resist the powers and principalities on your own. You can't overcome your own sin. You can't overcome someone else's sin. You can't overcome the brokenness of this world. You can't combat the demonic or the devil on your own. All you can do on your own is lose or yield or join their forces. That's all you can do on your own. But you know what you can do in the power of Christ Jesus? By living life in Him and Him in you. It's being seated in the heavenly places with Him. Participating Participating in his death and in his resurrection. You can have the victory that belongs to him. He's a better inheritance. In the Old Testament, they fought year after year after year. Either against themselves or against foreign enemies. They never had any meaningful long-term rest in that land of promise. But friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us rest even right now. Even in the midst of these trying circumstantial days that we live in, even in the midst of health crisis and political crisis and financial crisis and family crisis and whatever else that you think that you might be dealing with, friend, he has promised you life and life abundantly. And it doesn't start later. It starts right now because he is the better inheritance. And whatever circumstance you're facing, he is greater than. Friends, Jesus gives us true rest from slavery. I know that in these political, tumultuous times that we live in, that many would consider it to be in very poor taste for a middle, upper class, decently educated white man who was born in the Deep South, who still lives on the edge of the Deep South, to talk about freedom from slavery. There would be some people who'd be really bothered about me even addressing this issue right now. Friends, I don't really care at all about political tumultuous circumstances. The word of God is clear. Everyone has always been a slave since the fall. Slave to sin. And some people have taken their slavery to sin. To horribly actually enslave other people. And that's terrible. But they were still slaves too. Slaves to their sin. And friend, if you want real freedom from your slavery. You're not going to find it in your own strength and in your own power and your own effort and your own work. You're not going to find it in politics. You're not going to find it by relocating. You're not going to find it in a different country state. You're not going to find it under a better law system. If you want real slavery from the real enslaver, which is our sin, it must be overthrown and you must be set free by the work of Jesus. That's what makes his inheritance better, is that when they left... Egypt and they left slavery and they walked into the land of promise. God said, listen, there's going to be some people there that are going to try to put you in a different kind of slavery. You won't serve them the way you did the Egyptians, but you'll serve their gods and you'll be just as much of a slave as you were in Egypt. In Egypt, you were oppressed physically in this land. If you're not careful, you'll be oppressed spiritually, but either way, you'll still be oppressed and you won't be free. And they said, we've got it covered, God. We don't need your help. And they left one kind of slavery in Egypt and embraced a different kind of slavery in the land where they should have been free. And friends, I tell you today that if you're continuing to live your life in that same old way that you always did in the hardened conditions of your heart and not truly and really reflecting the image bearer that you ought to be, you are a slave to sin. And the only way to be set free from that is in Jesus Christ. And that makes his inheritance better. It's better. Because they never got it in the Old Testament, ever. They never had that moment where, hey, everything's exactly the way that it should be, ever. They were always taunted and tempted on every side by a false god or some pleasure or something that an enemy was presenting or whatever. And I know that many of us in this room right now, we are still shackled. The scripture uses that language. Shackled to the sins that so easily beset us. Returning to it, the Old Testament... It's rough. If you have a soft stomach, I apologize. But friends, the word is the word, what the word is. In the Old Testament, it says we're like dogs that return to our own vomit. That's what we do with our sin. 
That's pretty disgusting. I don't know if you've ever seen dogs do that. And they get sick and they leave and they kind of, and they go back and eat that stuff. It's disgusting. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, what is wrong with you? I love dogs. So I'm like, seriously, that's disgusting. Like, pigs don't even do that. You're gross. That's nasty. I'm buying a pig next time. Pig is going to be my next pet. You're a disgusting animal. Like, what is wrong with you? And this is what we as human beings do with our sin, the scripture says. We know that it's killing us. We know that it's bad for us. We know that we should flee away from it. And when it gets removed from us, rather than going to the source of health and and, and freedom and well-being and transformation, we crawl back to it and consume it again. And the only way to be set free from that mindset is to be in Christ Jesus. Pierced through by the word of the gospel on a regular basis. He's a better inheritance because Jesus will give us true rest from our wanderings. Do you want to know what I have learned over 20 some odd years of pastoral ministry about most Christians. Most Christians never enjoy the true freedom and victory that Christ gives because most Christians never allow the Spirit of God to make war in their hearts with the idol of discontentment. We are never satisfied. So we keep wandering around. Looking for the next best thing. In the wilderness, they had everything they needed. And you know what they said? I'm tired of this bread. I'm tired of this meat. Didn't we have better things back in Egypt? They were discontent. Friends, basic normal Christianity is really not all that exciting. I know that sounds like a horrible thing for a pastor to say on a Sunday morning or worship service, but basic normal Christianity is just not all that exciting. You get up, you allow the word to penetrate your heart. You call out to God for help. In his grace and for his glory that you might look like Jesus that day. And then you strive against the old man who's dying. You try to feed through the word the new man who's living. And you try to reflect Jesus the best you can in traffic and at the grocery store and with your family and wherever you work and the people that you encounter. And then you go to sleep and you do it again the next day. It's not super exciting. Not fire falling from heaven and, you know... Plagues of frogs running around. Like, it's just not super exciting, you know? Like, you're just not randomly going to go to church one Sunday and then we're going to line a bunch of people up and, hey, this guy's crippled, now he's not, and this guy's blind and now he can see. Like, there's just not much that's going to go on. It's going to be, I'm struggling with my sin and I'm trusting Jesus to overcome the struggle with my sin and I'm praying that today I look more like Jesus than I did yesterday. Repeat. 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 And what happens with most of us is we get caught in the entrapment of discontentment. We like wandering around. I won't say who does this to leave the guilty unnamed. But I may have a very close relationship with someone. That when there's time to make an important decision about a purchase... One of the parties in that close relationship is able to quickly and readily identify that's what we need to get. We need to stop wasting time and energy thinking about this anymore. Let's just buy the thing. And the other person feels it necessary to travel to every place that possibly has a version of this thing in all of the colors and forms and styles that it might come in and physically examine, touch, smell, feel engage, analyze, draw pictures of, crime scene photo, whatever you need to make sure that it's exactly the right one until we go back to the original one that we saw the very first time and get it anyway. Does that ever happen to any of you? Y'all are super uncomfortable because y'all know I'm the one that likes to wander around and look at stuff. And y'all don't want to blame me for that. It's awful, I know. That happens to us. 
We like to wander. We're like one of the only few cultures in the world that has such a thing called window shopping. What is that? It's rarely through a window and you're not actually buying anything, which is the definition of shopping. Like, how do those two words even fit together? I don't know. But we like to wander. Wander. I like to wander. This is what I like to do. This, this is, I hate to say it out loud because it's going to hurt everybody's feelings. This is the manifestation of discontentment. Oh, hey, look at that's really nice. But we've got three of those. Boo, that one's really nice. I don't like the three I have now. I like that one better. We do it with random stuff. Food, cars, shoes, houses, clothing. But then we start to do it with serious things if you're not careful. Families. Jobs. Churches. Jesus. So I've never done that to Jesus, have you not? Never been discontented with the way your relationship with Jesus is? Guess what? That's not Jesus' fault. Jesus is absolutely amazing just the way he is. I've been discontent with Jesus a lot in my life. And it's never been Jesus' fault. I've looked past Jesus plenty of times in my life for a better version of Jesus. It's called sinning. If you don't think you've ever done that, that's the definition of sinning. Jesus has established a reality for you to live in. You say, I don't want to live in that reality. You go live in a different reality. You've looked past Jesus to a better Jesus who's going to affirm the life that you want for yourself rather than the one he's called you to. It's discontentment. It's wandering around in the wilderness. Jesus is a better inheritance because he gives us true rest from our wanderings. When we have settled in on the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, and we delight ourselves in him, his being and our being in unity through the gospel, we cease to look for a better Jesus. There's no more wandering. We are content. And you can only get that through Christ. So this morning... Ask a hard question. What promise, because this is talking about the promise of God's rest. This is the promise of God's rest that this passage is talking about. What promise am I viewing as better than Jesus rather than Jesus himself? Say, Philip, I don't do that. They did. They were looking for the rest. They weren't looking for the relationship with God. You know what Esau's great problem was? He wanted the blessing and he wanted the birthright, but he didn't want the relationship with God. Do you know what the problem for most modern Christians is? We want our seat at the table in heaven. We want the family reunion. We want to be able to visit with grandma and ask the apostle Paul all those questions that we have. We want our cloud and our heart, but we don't want Jesus. And friends, let me tell you this morning, you can't have the family reunion and you can't have the seat at the table and you can't have all of the benefits that come with the eternity in the people of God if you don't have Jesus. I remember a long, long time ago, long time ago. As a very, very young man dipping my toe into ministry. Wondering. What it was all about. I was seated at a table with several other young green behind the ear guys like me. With a very older, much more mature man in the faith. And we were talking about heaven. We were trying to wrap our mind around the promise of eternity. And people began talking about some of the things that we knew were promised in the scripture and what we what we longed for, what we wanted to be able to participate in. And it was all the same answers. And friends, they're not bad answers. That's the problem with most idolatry. Most idolatry is not you going to worship Dagon, doing something just really awful. 
Most idolatry is taking something good and making it great. Rather than just letting it be a good thing that you enjoy. It becomes a great thing that we worship. That's the problem with idolatry. And so we're sitting around the table and we're talking about this very good thing, heaven. That's a good thing. And some are saying, man, you know, that there's going to be all these saints from old that we'll be able to engage with. Be able to talk to and be able to hear stories from. And that's it's going to be amazing. And, and there's another guy jumped in and, said, and there's not going to be any more physical pain. You're not going to get sick and you're not going to get injured and your body is going to be a resurrection body and it's going to be whole and it's going to be well and it's going to be immortal. And that's wow, okay. There's not going to be any more sin. You won't even be tempted to do anything that's contrary to the will of God anymore. What would it be like to live in a, a world where there's no abiding presence of sin at all? Like, well, I can't even begin to imagine. And we're throwing out all these good things. All these good things. They're all good. We're feeling pretty astute. Feeling pretty good about ourselves. The older gentleman that was there with us kind of got in the conversation. He said, fellas, you all have a big, big problem. If you're going to be in Christian ministry and you're going to be guiding people in the truth of the word of God, you're going to have to redirect your thinking past all of these good things. And you're going to have to always have your thinking go to the great thing. And we said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, not one of you said the great joy and hope of heaven is that you get to finally see Jesus. You left Jesus out of your description of heaven. What good is heaven without Jesus there? They've got another name for that place and it's not heaven. And it was a brutal, aggressive, sharp, double-edged sword piercing of the heart in that moment of my Lord in heaven, forgive me when I take the good things and I make them great and worship them instead of your son. And these folks in Hebrews chapter 4 were longing for the rest of God, but they had taken the rest of God and they had made it the great thing and they didn't care how you got the rest. They didn't care why the arrest would be accomplished. They didn't even care who the rest really was. They just wanted the rest. And so friends, this morning I ask you a hard question that the writer to Hebrews asked in chapter 4 that I've had to ask of myself. What good promise are you putting above Jesus today? Because friends, idolatry comes in a lot of forms. But the sneakiest, scariest version of idolatry is when we take the good things that God has promised to us and we push the Savior out of the way and we place the good promises of God on the throne. And we have all of the benefits and all of the blessings, but none of the Savior. And it's a really dangerous place for a Christian to live. And sadly, if we're honest, it's where many of us live most of the time. Our minds don't go to Jesus. They go to what Jesus can do for us. And Jesus has become our heavenly vending machine to meet the needs that we think that we have and not the sovereign king of the universe who's worthy of our worship. I close with a paraphrase from John Calvin toward the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, even essentially, he said, even if there was no hope of heaven or deliverance from sin, or deliverance from the wrath of God, Jesus would still be worthy of my life and worship because He is Jesus. It's not what He can do for me. It's who He is. Because Jesus is the better rest. Jesus is is the better Sabbath. Jesus is better than. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you.
Thank you that Jesus is better than. Thank you for the goodness and the greatness and the glory that he displays. Father, forgive me. When I look out at all of the benefits of the Savior. And I take those and I put them in a place of preeminence above the one who's given them to me. Father, forgive me when I idolize the blessings over the one who blesses. Father, forgive me when I long for all of the benefits. When I long for all of the side effects. But I don't long for the Savior. Father, forgive me when I strive for the rest of God. The Sabbath of God, the inheritance of God. But I don't strive for you, God, through your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive me. Tear down the idols in my life. Even the ones that look beautiful because they are good things from you. Help me, God, to order my life according to your principles that Jesus is better than. And he is the only one worthy of my affection. And I thank you for it in advance in Jesus name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.